Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction or any type of compulsive sexual behavior. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And I must admit the response to my uh, my first ever coupon code, Happy New Year, all one word, has been great. So I am going to keep it going. So use that to get $50 off the Pathback Recovery program. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com and coupon code Happy New Year, all one word, at checkout. So since we have last spoke, there have been a few different podcasts released that uh, I have been interviewed on, and I just wanted to throw those out there. If you get a chance, please go check them out. I'll put links on TonyOverbay.com on the website, and uh, that I'll put the links there around these episodes. I'm going to release the content at some point just as bonus episodes, but uh, I love to just point people to these wonderful podcasts because the people that put them on do an amazing job. So here's three that were just in the last week that uh, that I really enjoyed. I was on Monica Packer's About Progress podcast. And I have to tell you that one, I've, I've been sending out to people who have just wanted to have a basic overview of what I call the emotional baseline theory and also acceptance and commitment therapy, therapy ACT. Monica does a great job of, we did a, the interview a little while ago, and then she takes the interview and she kind of divides it up with her thoughts uh, leading up to a question and then what I say about a topic and then she just really um, breaks down what the points are that I made. And I just think she does a really nice job. You know, she's just edited it fantastic. So that's about progress, Monica Packer. And the next one was just a lot of fun. I was on a episode or I was on a podcast called Marriage Therioki, and that's with uh, Celeste and Rich Davis. And that one's fun. That one's a very unique concept for a podcast where they take a, a song. In the case of the episode I was on, it was Carly Simon's You're So Vain. And the first thing they do is they are, I, I think they're hilarious, but they break down um, the mental health issue around a song. So they go down through the lyrics of You're So Vain. And I, I it's been weeks now. I can't, I've got the song so stuck in my head. A couple of couple of things. There's a little sneak preview. Do you know what, I, uh, do you know what it means to gavat? If not, then go check that out. That's Marriage Therioki. But then they, if you know anything about that song, then they had me come on and talk. I did, I think, about 30 or 40 minutes on narcissism and how to recognize the signs. And if you're in a relationship with someone who may be exhibiting narcissistic tendencies, what you can do to uh, the do's and don'ts in order to kind of keep your sanity. So that one is, and they ended up breaking it into a two-parter because we just covered so much ground. And then yesterday, I'm releasing this one on a Monday, but yesterday, um, and this one, if you happen to be a, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, you, you, I would love to point you to this one. It's called, it's from a site called leadingsaints.org. And there's a guy there named Kurt Frankham. He does an amazing job. He's had this site going for years. And it's basically um, a podcast and a site that does a lot of trainings for people in any type of leadership position um, in the church. And, but he had me on to talk about um, kind of the concept of shame again, around pornography addiction. And even if you're not somebody that's ever dealt with pornography addiction, or but if you just happen to be in the, the LDS culture, or um, I really highly recommend listening to that one. Kurt did such an, an, a nice job. We covered so much ground on just the concept of, of shame in general and guilt and strength-based things. And, and I kind of get to hit a lot of things that I really love talking about. So that one's at leadingsaints.org. And, uh, but I highly encourage you to, to subscribe to all three of those podcasts. And you can head over to TonyOverbay.com and sign up to find out more. I'm going to try to do better in, in maybe a, 
a newsletter format to make people aware of some of the places that I'm being interviewed or those kind of things. It still feels weird to kind of say, hey, go check me out. But today's topic, let's get to it. Uh, can your brain multitask? I love how people talk about this often. I've done it too, where we say, no, no, I'm, I'm really, I'm best when I've got a lot of things going on. I got a lot of balls in the air and you know, my brain multitasks well and that sort of thing. So before we even get to the nice um, evidence-based info or data around can your brain multitask, here's I'm going to take you on my train of thought, and here's where kind of this led. I, there's, a, there's a poem that I heard long ago, and I think about it often, but it's one of those things where I only had a tiny bit of data from the poem, and so I have meant to look it up forever. So that's part of what started me on this journey this morning. So I look up the poem, and turns out that uh, from all I can tell, that it is, there is, it's not attributed to anyone in particular. And I think you're going to recognize it, but, but if you bear with me here, it says, realize the value of time. So time and perspective. So imagine there's a bank which credits your account every morning with $86,400. And that carries over no balance from day to day. It allows you to keep no cash balance. And every evening cancels whatever part of the amount that you had failed to use during your day. What would you do? Draw out every cent, of course. Well, everybody has such a bank. Its name is time. Every morning, it credits you with 86,400 seconds. Every night, uh, it writes off as lost whatever of this you have failed to invest to a good purpose. It carries over no balance. It allows no overdraft. Each day, it opens a new account for you, and each night, it burns the records of the day. If you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours. There's no going back. There's no drawing against the tomorrow. You must live in the present on today's deposits. Invest in it as to get the most... um, I think I just butchered that line. Invest it. There you go. Invest it as to get from it the utmost in health, happiness, and success. The clock is running. Make the most of the day. And here's the stuff that I always think about. It says to to realize the value of one year, ask a student who failed a grade. To realize the value of one month, ask a mother who gave birth to a premature baby. To realize the value of one week, ask the editor of a weekly newspaper. To realize the value of one hour, ask the lovers who are waiting to meet. To realize the value of one minute. Ask a person who just missed the train to realize the value of one second. Ask a person who just avoided an accident to realize the value of one millisecond. Ask the person who won a silver medal in the Olympics. Treasure every moment that you have and treasure it more because you shared it with someone special, special enough to spend your time. And remember, time waits for no one. And then here's the part that always gets uh, often gets quoted. Yesterday is a history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. So I, and I always forget that part, uh, the yesterday is history, today, today, tomorrow's a mystery, today's a gift, that's why it's called the present. I don't know why, but I always, um, I always think about that concept of the one millisecond, ask the person who made a silver medal in the Olympics. And the time, what, when this goes through my head a lot, is as a therapist with a, just a very blessed practice, I only have a few minutes in between sessions. And in theory, a therapist holds a 50-minute hour, and I'm really good with my boundaries. I have this little cheesy therapy clock that all my clients know about, and it shows this red. Um, it's actually, if you go look it up, it's called a time timer. and uh, But it shows a, a red representation of the 50-minute hour, and the red kind of slowly moves away. So people know as they see the red ticking away that uh, that our time is is drawing nigh. And, and so, again, good with boundaries, but throughout the day, I will have people often, I mean, a lot of emails and a lot of texts and people that, and I, a lot of people that are just, hey, can you give me a quick call? And I always feel so goofy when I'm saying, I, I kind of can't, you know, and, and people say, it's just going to take a minute. But, you know, someone's best intentions of a minute when I only have four or five minutes between sessions, and that's if I also have to 
quickly use the restroom or I'm going to try to touch base with someone or if somebody can't make it, you know, if there's a last minute cancellation or something, if I'm trying to fit somebody else in, I often have people that are looking for open spots throughout the day. And, and so I just think about what I do with those three or four or five minutes. And long ago, I think I used to just kind of sit in my chair and now I realize I can make quite a bit of use of those t- that time. And I don't think I was ever a person that would would think, you know, I got to squeeze everything out of every minute of every day kind of a person. Um, but uh, but that has have been the case over time. So I think often about just that concept of time. And I will often think about that leads me to here's that train of thought part about if I'm if I'm looking at a text or I've got a phone message or I have uh, some emails to get back to or if I know something's going on. I mean, and this is just being authentic. Um, I want to make sure and try to reach out to my kids throughout the day, if, whether it's a text or a meme or, uh, you know, something. I don't know. Whatever it is, just let them know I'm thinking about them. And uh, this is a big passion of mine. My wife and I love to touch base throughout the day as well. And and matter of fact, if I'll go off on one quick tangent when I'm here in couples therapy and sometimes let's just say a spouse says, you know, I, I really appreciate it when my husband will will just reach out to me. Just let me know that uh, something's going on. And then I'll have I'll have guys say, not all, a lot of guys say, okay, that sounds good. I did, I wasn't aware. I'll, I'll make a bigger effort. Um, but when I'll have guys say, look, I'm busy, you know, I, and, and I always think in myself, I think, uh, you know, you, you aren't uh, for one second looking up something on the internet or you aren't going to the restroom or, you know, we're just talking about shoot them a, hey, I'm thinking about you. And so I want to fit those things in there as well throughout the day. But so that that brings up that concept of how fat can your brain multitask? And I hear that concept often where people say my brain is good at multitasking or I can't multitask. And so and and I've gotten several questions and emails over the last year or so uh, where people will say, um, can the brain multitask or what's wrong with me because my brain can't multitask or I am only a linear thinker or those sort of things as if they're a bad thing. So I thought I would look it up. Um, and this is coming from a website called scienceabc.com in an art, uh, article by a gentleman named John Stoughton. And so most of what I'm going to read here is going to be um, from this article. And, and John did a nice job. I don't know. I don't know, John. Maybe I'd say Stoughton. Mr. Stoughton did a nice job of uh, packing in here what it means to multitask. So he says in our fast paced sensory overloaded modern world, which I already love that concept, sensory overloaded is definitely the case. The ability to multitask seems like an essential skill if you want to survive and thrive. And I think that's the concept where I have people bringing it to me of what's wrong with me if, if they're telling themselves that story, if I can't multitask. But juggling multiple ideas or tasks or conversations or streams of attention is now considered this invaluable skill um, for professionals. Almost as if you, and I've heard of a couple of people in job interviews where they say, how do you do with multitasking? And that's one of those questions where the person knows that their answer is supposed to be, um, I'm good. I can multitask all over the place. But can human beings actually divide their attention and take care of two things at once? Or what about when you're thrown three or four? Is it possible to multitask? So Stoughton says the short answer, and I found this through multiple websites um, that and uh, in, in, in all that I could find, that the short answer is no. And if it seems like you can, what that is, is that's your brain working quickly. It's not actually working on two things at the same time. And this is where things get really interesting, kind of uh, fascinating. Let's talk about the science of focus. So to put it plainly, um, multitasking is actually a scientific impossibility because that, that truly isn't how our brains were designed to work. So we have a part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. It's, it's the control center of the brain when we are trying to focus on something. And the prefrontal cortex is actually linked to both halves of the brain. And so it, it's the thing that coordinates the other areas of the brain that are necessary for attention and the achievement of a set of goals. And so with the massive amount of computing power in our brain, it's natural to assume that this prefrontal cortex can independently handle two tasks or maybe even three or four, but it isn't just the case. So when you attempt to tackle more than one task, 
um, and it seems like you're focusing on two or three or four at one time, the brain is shifting focus extremely rapidly. So for a healthy brain, and, and here's what's happening, the um, the shift happens almost instantaneously. So when people are, when they do have a lot going on and they feel like, okay, I got, I got multiple neurons firing at the same time at the same, you know, doing these various tasks, um, people are just changing the focal point of the brain in just a matter of milliseconds. So, and that goes into this next concept where there are actually two stages in the act of focusing, but both are still controlled by this, this prefrontal cortex. The two stages when you're talking about um, your focus are goal shifting and then rule activation. So the first stage is where the actual shift in focus from one activity comes to the next. And that's the thing, again, it happens very quickly in milliseconds. The second part of that, this rule activation, Stoughton does a nice job of, of saying this is where things get complicated because the brain has to move away from the rules required to complete one task. Like just think of an example, driving or walking or talking or eating or chewing gum, all of those kind of things. And then it has to quickly gather the rules required for the next task before continuing. So think about that. So that's the concept where, you know, you're going to shift focus and then you're going to have to all of a sudden, um, it's going to go into rule activation mode. What are the rules for this next thing that my brain has just shifted focus on? So gathering that information or data can sometimes take a long time and particularly when we get older. And I think that's the part that if I'm being very open and vulnerable, man, I feel like that's starting to happen a little bit more. That whole concept of, uh, I mean, you know, basically you, your brain, it almost needs to do this little reset for before that second task. So here's where things then really get interesting. So you would think then that as I'm laying this out, that our brain's going to shift focus, then we have to gather the rules before the next task is to be accomplished, that giving that little pause to say, all right, let me get myself centered would be a good thing. And, and in, in essence, it would, but it's not as efficient. So, uh, so stay with me here. So do you ever sort of just freeze, right, before going on to the next activity? Um, I've heard them called a variety of things, brain lapses, uh, brain zaps. I, <laughs> trying to not say brain farts on a podcast. Uh, sorry about that. In my house, we didn't use that word growing up, but brain toot or brain fluff doesn't quite sound the same, does it? But so here's the deal. The problem with the quick shifting is it turns out that you are basically interrupting the whole cognitive process of attention. So that whole refocusing or trying to figure out the rules does have a cost. So research in this field is extensive, Stoughton says, and has found that attempting to do more than one thing at once usually results in more mistakes and a slower total time for goal achievement than if a person had fully completed one task before moving on to the next. So all these, even though the shifts of attention only take milliseconds, that that time does add up, but even more importantly, it taxes the brain. So, so kind of just in a quick review then, when you have those that shift in focus, which is really what multitasking is about, then we have to gather the data of what are the rules of going on to this next task. And so that's kind of where we start to, that, that's the, the cost of, of doing, trying to multitask. That's where the struggle really comes in. So Stoughton says, is this a standard struggle? He says the doubters reading this article may already be formulating their rebuttals, suggesting they can walk down the street and chew gum and talk on the phone and admire the scenery all at the same time. And technically they aren't wrong because there are certain tasks and behaviors that our body performs nearly automatically. And I've done podcasts about this in the past, where when these things go into the basal ganglia or the habit center of the brain, then sure, the brain is, has gotten pretty good at this enough that it can throw it into this, hey, we don't really have to think about this very often part of the brain. 
Um, so the, the inability to multitask mainly applies to these high-level brain functions, or else nobody would be able to eat a sandwich and watch TV at the same time. So our autonomic nervous system and less critical brain areas, uh, those control many of these basic actions. And so apparently that's what kind of gives people this idea that we can multitask, that we can walk down the street and chew gum, and that's because both of those things have been firmly implanted in this basal ganglia. So if your idea of, I got life figured out, I'm walking and chewing gum, I might even be able to hum, then you go, right? Because your brain is multitasking at that level. But if you are looking at doing the more um, higher level brain functions, then which I think that's the part where people feel like, well, if I can walk, chew gum, hum, and eat a sandwich all at the same time and watch TV, there's five things, then I must be good at multitasking. However, this is that part where try reading a book, Stoughton says, or holding a conversation with somebody at the same time, and you'll start to notice where multitasking breaks down. And let me be honest, so this is kind of funny, this happened to me last night. So this leadingsaints.org podcast came out, and I've been waiting on this one for a while. I'm really, you know, it's I, I really put myself out there in, with regard to addiction and, and kind of getting rid of ga- guilt and shame and in, in a very specific kind of a culture. And so I was sending this out to a few people, and my wife and I were processing some things last night. We had an amazing time. We did just hanging out. It's the silliest thing. We were watching uh, America's Funniest Home Videos, which to me makes me laugh every single time. And we're just talking, and we're just on the couch. And and uh, But there were a couple of times where I'm, I'm sending this podcast out to a lot of people that I had really... Uh, knew about it, that it was coming out and I wanted to share it with. And so I was, I was kind of saying, hey, I'm just like sending this thing out kind of mindlessly. So um, no offense to those who got the podcast text, I guess, right? Uh, but so I'm sending this thing out and then and then all of a sudden I realized, okay, I'm really not paying complete attention. I could honestly say at that moment that if she quizzed me on what she had just said, I had a good idea, but that's not fair. I care about her more than that. So I, I, you know, I did what I say to do all the time to my kids or what I try to do to be intentional is I put down the phone and I told her, you know what, this is ridiculous. Let me focus on you. Um, but so, so that's the concept of where even when we say, well, no, I can do it, but is it the most efficient or is, are you being most effective there? Because you're just shifting focus. And that's what I would, if I would look back on that now, it was a shifting focus, shifting focus, that sort of thing. And if I looked at the rules of conversation, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, my brain's kind of gathering them, uh, you know, I think all of those factors were at play. So, so, you know, again, Stoughton says, try reading a book and holding a conversation. You'll begin to understand where multitasking breaks down. Since both of those activities require the same part of the brain, and that's what's cool. That's what's really important here. The language and word processing, the prefrontal cortex can't handle both requests at the same time. So the explanation is beginning to make our brain sound kind of simple. Um, it's like this methodical machine, but there is far more depth to this subject. Stoughton goes on to say that there are many shades of gray in our executive processes and the brain's control center because it allows us to prioritize what consumes our attention. So we are able to consciously ignore certain distractions, such as tuning out others' voices um, in a loud restaurant or bar, or narrowing our vision to a single point rather than being overwhelmed by a constant flood of auditory or visual information from our surroundings. In other words, don't think of your brain as a broken tool that can't judge multiple things at once because your brain really is pretty darn incredible and we probably most likely take it for granted. So he asked the question, is there any hope for improvement? Um, Stoughton says, while multitasking as a common practice has largely been debunked based on our brain's fundamental functions, some studies have shown slight contradictions. For example, in certain dual task situations that require different parts of the brain, the right and left lobes of the brain are both activated, but neither have the complete power of the brain behind them. The number of errors that the research subjects made were significantly increased during these brain-splitting moments, and the rapid shifting of attention between the lobes made it difficult to definitively pinpoint true multitasking. And then he even goes on to say that in the same research, when a 
third task was added to the mix, the subject performance declined rapidly, and one of the tasks was commonly ignored or completely botched. So this study was controversial in its conclusions, but it does offer another perspective. Um, what, what, good multi, what, you know, what good is multitasking if you can only apply it to simple tasks that will likely be performed imperfectively? Um, I botched that word, didn't I? Imperfectly. Um, so what good are the, you know, if you're trying to multitask, and but you're not all in on any of these tasks, you might even botch some of them like I just did that word because I was most likely looking up at my recording to see that things were still um, recording and looking down at my notes, then I botched the word imperfectly. All right, so many experts believe that trying to multitask is actually damaging to the brain's ability to focus and maintain attention on a single subject. I thought that was pretty fascinating. The more you try and become a multitasker, the more likely it is that your brain will try and take in too much information, take on too many tasks, and not perform any of them particularly well. It's almost as if that neuroplasticity of the brain is saying, man, is that what this guy's going to do all the time? I mean, I, be, I guess I better ramp myself up and try to get as good at it as, as I can, even though we now have the data to show that I'm not going to be very good at it. That's my brain talking there. So in other words, he says, try to take things one at a time and give your brain a break. You'll be better off in the long run. So again, thank you, John Stoughton. I really, uh, I really appreciated that. So I want you to think about next time you are thinking about, I'm multitasking. You know, can you just stay um, on one neurological path and finish that task and then move to the next? Or even just bring a little bit of awareness. When you note, notice that I am starting to switch focus, um, you know, have you, have you completed the task at hand? Are you starting to get into that? What are the rules for this next task uh, right now? And I almost did a, one of the podcasts I've almost done several times is this one called the Trans Theoretical Model of Change, the TTM. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool. It's um, these stages of change. And one of them is if you don't even think that there's anything you need to work on, um, I think it's pre-contemplation or uh, anyway, I need to do the podcast on it, right? But at some point, though, just bringing this awareness is where you might think, okay, maybe I'll be uh, more aware. Maybe that I need to do something about it. Those are just the first stages. You don't have to go from zero to 60 all of a sudden and just say, all right, I must be perfect at this, uh, at this thing. And what do you do with this information? Remember, um, let's acceptance and commitment therapy the heck out of this thing. If all of a sudden your brain's telling you, man, I've been wasting a lot of time, um, your brain's trying to fuse you to that. See, there's nothing you can do. Continue to multitask and not worry about it story. Uh, just if you, if you want to be more focused, if you want to be more intentional, if you want to put your phone down and, and listen to your partner, then we do that. And then if you find that you aren't doing that in a moment, uh, just note that and don't, don't get fused to that story of, see, I can't even get this right. Um, just continue to keep making progress toward whatever those goals are that you have. So I thought just for fun at the end, and, and a lot of people maybe will hear this and think their brain will say, uh, you know, especially back with that time poem of, oh my gosh, I've wasted this time. Or, you know, what's the difference of when they're talking about, it's been a decade and I haven't done things that I always thought I would do. So don't, don't fuse to those stories. So I thought I would lead or end by talking about a few people that, uh, I love these stories of people that didn't change till later in their life. And, and there's a little part of me too, that, I mean, I, part of the story that I told on probably two or three of those podcasts I mentioned earlier in the, in, in this podcast, um, when being interviewed is that I did 10 years in a computer software career. And then I just slowly ramped my way up to become a therapist. Well, I just turned 49. So sometimes I like to think to myself, well, I don't like to think to myself, my, my brain is telling me, why, why didn't you do this earlier? Why didn't you figure this out? Why did you take those 10 years and, and do computer software first? And, uh, you know, and I kind of step back and go, all right, I see what you're doing there, brain. Um, not a very productive thought. And uh, the, the point is, I'm here now. So uh, now's the time I can only work with the present, right? So I wanted to go over a few people that made some pretty darn incredible changes later in life. And there's one, you know, I'm a runner. I love the whole running thing. And I'm really fascinated by people like this. There's a woman, so I've run this Western States Endurance Run, this 100-mile run from Squaw Valley 
um, down to Auburn, California, which is, is close to where I live. I've been fortunate enough to do that one three times. Some people call it the Super Bowl of 100-mile runs, that sort of thing. And there was a woman a couple of years ago that finished at the age of 69. That's right, a 100-mile trail run. And it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. And my brain cannot pull her name right now and uh, see how that works because I've told this story many, many times. So I'll try to link that in my bio, or not in the bio, in the show notes. But uh, but that's an amazing story. But uh, look at this one. This is a woman named Gladys Burrill. Gladys Burrill is an incredible woman. She had been an aircraft pilot, a mountain climber, a hiker, a horseback rider, but that is not what she is known for. Um, Gladys ran her first marathon when she was 86 years old, and then she became famous after completing the Honolulu Marathon at the age of 92. Yes, 92 years old. No, she did not win it. Uh, she did not run it in under three hours or anything like that. It took her nine hours and 53 minutes. Um, she power walked, she jogged all throughout, but she reached the finish line. 92, uh, that was, yeah, 92 years old um, is uh, when she completed the Honolulu Marathon. So a couple others. Laura Ingalls Wilder. I thought this was pretty fascinating. 43, when her daughter Rose encouraged her to write a memoir about her childhood, and her first attempt at writing her autobiography was rejected several times. So she spent the next several years improving it, and uh, publishers agreed to publish her work in form of a fictional story for young children. She was 65 years old when Little House in the Big Woods was published, and she wrote her other Little House series, including the last one that came out at the age of 76. And uh, Ray Kroc, if you know that name, um, Ray Kroc, uh, immediately after volunteering during World War I, Ray Kroc spent his career selling paper cups and milkshake machines. And they went on to California to meet the restaurant owners who needed his milkshake machines. I think this was, if you've seen the movie Founder with Michael Keaton, they covered this. But he was amazed and simplified at, uh, he was amazed by the simplified and smooth production of their processes. And um, so he purchased uh, the company, um, joined forces with the owners at the age of 53, purchased the company at 59, and then went on to do a bunch of franchises known as McDonald's. So that was at 59 when he did that. And this was interesting too, with all the superhero movies that are out. Um, at 95 years old, Stan Lee was considered the godfather of Marvel Comics, but he didn't create his first comic till he was 39. At nearly 40, Lee created the first The Fantastic Four comic, which later led him to co-creating Spider-Man, Black Panther, the X-Men, and countless other legendary superheroes who now dominate the box office decades later. And one of my clients just told me about uh, the, the movie about Julia Child that I have not seen, but um, she worked in advertising the majority of her life. She didn't release her first cookbook until the age of 50, which catapulted her into stardom and turned her into one of the original celebrity chefs. And um, one that I did not, I, I, boy, I found uh, all kinds of info on Colonel Sanders. If you're already thinking about him, um, I found, you know, you can actually go to Snopes.com and look at urban legends around Colonel Sanders. And I guess there's, uh, in the most part, I mean, he really did have a little bit later start at 40. He was running a service station in Kentucky where he would feed hungry travelers and eventually moved his operation to a restaurant across the street and featured a fried chicken. So notable that he was named a Kentucky Colonel in 1935 by Governor Ruby Lafoon. And uh, then after that, um, there's that's where kind of the lore of Colonel Sanders goes on, that at one point uh, the rumors are that he was near penniless in his 60s and then ended up um, more than 600 franchise outlets or, or even more than that. Uh, but the last one, here we go. Momofuku Ando. Who is Momofuku Ando? The, let's just say that if you are a college student, you likely would not have been able to survive if it weren't for him. Ando's claim to success was just before the age of 50 when he invented instant ramen noodles way back in 1958. So thank you, Momofuku Ando, Ando, especially for the delicious um, chicken flavored top ramen. Not really sure what was going on with the shrimp or some of those other flavors. That's a whole other point. So, hey, thanks for joining me on the, mult, uh, the multitasking brain. Uh, look at what my brain was trying to do. It can't multitask. I was looking down at my notes about episode 101, multitasking brain. 
Thank you for joining me on the Virtual Couch today, episode 101, which was about whether or not our brains can multitask. And also we shared that uh, poem about time. So today truly is the present. So uh, uh, my, my hopes and dreams are that you make the most out of it. So until next time, I'll see you again. flying past our heads and out the other end the pressures of the daily grind